The title of today's message, Our Eternal Creator. Our Eternal Creator. In these many weeks of introduction to the book of Genesis, I have had somewhat of a heart of fear and trembling when I considered approaching the text itself to exegete Genesis 1.1. I consider this, as many do, to be the pinnacle of God's revelation in a singular verse. Henry Morris said this of Genesis 1.1, the first verse of the Bible is the foundational verse of the Bible. If the book of Genesis is indeed the Bible's foundational book, as shown previously, then it's obvious that the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which deal with the whole world and with all the nations, constitute the foundation of the rest of Genesis, which deals specifically with the beginning of the nation of Israel. By the same token, chapter 1 of Genesis is the foundational chapter of these first 11 chapters, since it summarizes the creation of the world and all things therein. Finally, Genesis 1-1 is the foundational verse of this foundational chapter Speaking of the primeval creation of the universe itself, it is the foundation of all foundations and is thus the most important verse in the Bible. It undoubtedly contains the first words ever written. And since it is the opening statement of the world's most often printed book, these are surely the most widely read words ever written. Most people at least start to read the Bible, and therefore most people have read at least these opening words in the Bible, even if they never got any farther. Dear saints, these words are precious, and these words are powerful. These are the words that our God, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who split time by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, into His creation, imparted unto us these words, that we might know Him. Read with me Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Simple, profound, bold, and unique. In the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. We will not finish exegeting that verse this week. In the beginning, God. Really, my goal today is to introduce you to that God. Our eternal Creator. What we find in the very first book, in the very first chapter, in the very first verse of God's revelation is the introduction of the eternal God, the everlasting God, the God who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the God who is the great I Am. When Moses asked God, who should he tell Israel sent him? God said, you tell them that I Am sent you. The eternal existent one. I am. This is our God, dear saints, our eternal creator. And the Bible stands unique in the literature of mankind and that it's not of mankind. It's of God. 
It is authored by God. It is inspired by God. And it reads as such from Genesis 1.1 to Revelation 22. It is the revelation of God to man. It is unique amongst origin accounts. It is unique amongst those would-be claims at Scripture, those would-be attempts at explaining the origin of the cosmos that man has created, and that in man's writings, in man's thinking, the cosmos is eternal. And then their gods interact with an eternal cosmos. They interact with the material universe. They may form it, they may craft it, they may shape it, but they did not create it. They are not pre-existent. They are not eternal. They are not everlasting to everlasting. Man did not conceive of the God of Genesis 1.1. The God of the cosmos revealed Himself to man in Genesis 1.1. The gods that man creates, lowercase g, are gods that can merely craft and shape and fashion an eternal cosmos. But the eternal God is the one who created the eternal cosmos and then fashioned it according to His will. And so Genesis 1.1 stands utterly unique. You must understand that there are only two options as far as the foundation of all things, as far as the foundation of the cosmos, the origin of the cosmos and life in it, there are two options. You either have an eternal creator or eternal cosmos. It's really that simple. Naturalism, materialism is the eternal cosmos. And I've already introduced you to Carl Sagan and his famous statement regarding his eternal cosmos, which is really his God, which is really a reflection of his heart as Romans 1 foretold. They exchange the image of God, the glory of God for the creature, and they worship the creature rather than the Creator. Carl Sagan said, quote, The cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. Our feeblest comp- contemplations of the cosmos stir us. There is a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice, a faint sensation as if a distant memory of a falling from a height, of falling from a height. We know we are approaching the greatest of mysteries. And I remind you once again that not only is that worldview utterly illogical and indefensible by all true science, it's also quite spiritual. The cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be is wholly unscientific. That is not a scientific statement. It is not scientifically defensible. It is not built on the foundation of science. It is a faith statement. And he goes on to evidence his faith. He moves from his faith statement to worship. This is Carl Sagan's Romans 11. Our feeblest contemplations of the cosmos stir us. There is a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice, a faint sensation as of a distant memory of falling from a height. Why does he say that? Because we are but stardust. We are born along with all the other 
materials of the universe in the heart of a star, according to Sagan. We know we are approaching the greatest of mysteries. Are we talking mystery, spirituality, faith, or science, Carl? Come now. And so, it's either eternal creator or eternal cosmos. And all the writings of men, even the religious writings of men that come forth from man's hearts, start with an eternal cosmos and then have man-made gods that form and fashion that eternal cosmos. Even Mormonism has an eternal cosmos and they, they shove the God of the Bible into their eternal cosmos and their other heresies and they make the God of the Bible to be a wee little God who is fashioning and forming an eternal cosmos rather than the God who is eternal, who created a finite cosmos which shall come to a certain end according to God's decree set before space, time, and matter were ever created. Pastor John MacArthur said, now there are basically only two options. You can either believe what Genesis says or not. And that is no oversimplification. Frankly, believing in a supernatural, creative God who made everything is the only possible rational explanation for the universe, for life, for purpose, and for destiny. Now the divine equation given in the Bible in contrast to nobody times nothing equals everything, the divine equation is found in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I don't know how it could be said more simply or more straightforwardly than that. Either you believe God did create the heavens and the earth, or you believe He did not. Really, those are the only two valid options you have. And if you believe that God did create the heavens and the earth, then you are left with the only record of that creation, and that's Genesis 1. And you are bound to accept the text of Genesis 1 as the only appropriate and accurate description of that creative act. So again, I say, you're left really with two choices. You either believe Genesis or you don't. You either believe the Genesis account that God created the heavens and the earth, or you believe they somehow evolved out of random chance. Looking at the account of Genesis 1.1, the words in that first verse are quite remarkable. And they are indicative of the incredible mind of God. God says in that first verse everything that could have been said about creation. He says it in such few terms. The statement is precise and concise, almost beyond human composition. A well-known scientist named Herbert Spencer, I've shared this with you before, but I want you to get it again. A well-named scientist named Herbert Spencer died in 1903. He discovered that all reality... All that exists in the universe can be contained in five categories, time, force, action, space, and matter. Think about that. Time, force, action, space, and matter. A logical sequence. And then consider Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, that's time. God, that's force. Created, that's action. The heavens, that's space. And the earth, that's matter. Everything that could be said about everything that exists is said in that first verse. Now, either you believe that or you don't. You either believe that that verse is accurate and God is the force, or you believe that God is not the force that created everything, and then you're left with chance or randomness or coincidence or truly, honestly, absurdity. You're left with an absurd universe and your absurd place in it. And you have no path 
to truth, having denied the God of truth, your creator. No truth in that absurd universe. And so we're left really, truly only with the eternal creator and his revelation of himself for the alternative is an eternal cosmos and that's absurd. Let's consider Genesis 1.1 In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In the week or weeks to come, yet to be determined, I will deal in more detail with in the beginning created heavens and earth. So I'll deal more particularly with time, with action, with space, and with matter. But I want to focus in on our eternal Creator, God, who is declared boldly, without explanation, in Genesis 1.1. I liken Genesis 1.1 to the account of the Lord Jesus' birth, to the account of the Lord Jesus' death even, and that it's just stated. It's just stated. It's not defended. It's just declared. And especially in his crucifixion, and then they crucified him. It's just so plain. It's just so vanilla. If we were writing this, we would put all sorts of decorative words around it, all sorts of adjectives and verbs and nouns. We would, we would really pump it up, trying to convince men of the glories therein. God doesn't try to convince men of his glory through extra adjectives. He just declares. He just declares himself. He does so uniquely. He does so profoundly. But without fanfare, as men who are writing, we write in a much more convincing manner, if you will, from a human perspective, trying to convince men of a God that we create, for instance, in Romans chapter 9, we would just skip. (laughs) We would just go from Romans 8 to Romans 10, right? What would we do with Romans 9? If we're going to convince men of the sovereignty of God, uh, we would just, just cut that from the Bible because that's offensive. That's offensive. And I'll say, and if we understand Genesis 1-1 rightly, we understand that that is equally offensive. For this God is our creator and it subjugates us forever then to creature status. We are beneath him. We are so incredibly finite. We are subject, all of us, aren't we, to various colds and flus and infirmities and our children are and our wives are and our husbands are and our parents are. Subject to all sorts of forces that move upon us. We're in control of very little. We set a plan and it's so often thwarted. It is not the decree of God that shall not be turned, shall not be thwarted. There are no contingencies with God. We set a plan and it's so often thwarted. So often it's in plan B and C and D. So often it is undone before the hour is up, much less the day or the week or the month or the year. Genesis 1.1 humbles mankind. In the beginning, God. The beginning of time is declared, and God is already there. He's already there. For God 
dwells in eternity. He is the creator of time. He who dwells in eternity created time. Time is connected intimately to space and matter. And our God created all three. I'll dwell on it perhaps more fully next time, but consider that our triune God created the cosmos in which there is space and time and matter. And our triune God, who is revealed here with the Hebrew word Elohim, which is in plural form, the I am in Elohim at the end is plural, at least allows for plurality. And this God, this triune God who we discover throughout Revelation, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this triune God declares a triune cosmos in the very first verse. In the beginning, time. God, Elohim, created. That's the action of the force. The heavens, space, and the earth matter. This is our triune God put on display. Consider the word Elohim. Elohim. This first occurrence of the divine Hebrew Elohim, the name which God stresses, His majesty and omnipotence, says Henry Morris. This name is used throughout the first chapter of Genesis. As I've already shared, the I am ending is the Hebrew plural ending, so the Elohim can actually mean gods, and is so translated in various passages referring to the gods of the heathen. However, it is clearly used here in the singular as the mighty name of God the Creator, the first over 2,000 times where it is used in this way. Thus, Elohim is a plural name with a singular meaning, a uni-plural noun. That's unique. Thereby suggesting the uni-plurality of the Godhead. God is one, yet more than one. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say of Elohim, the name of the supreme being, signifying in Hebrew, strong and mighty. It is expressive of omnipotent power, and by its use here in the plural form, is obscurely taught the opening of the Bible, a doctrine clearly revealed in other parts of it, namely that though God is one, there is plurality of persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, who were engaged in the creative work. The great Shema, the great declaration of worship in the tabernacle and in the temple following it throughout all of Israel's history was the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one. Yahweh, our Elohim, is one. And so the proper name of God, this, this Elohim, this uniplural name of God, and yet He is one. By the time we get in the weeks ahead, by the time we get just, just little ways into Genesis chapter 1, we already find that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then the Spirit of God is hovering over the face of the waters, then God said, let us, these plural pronouns, let us create man in our plural pronoun image, singular. And so we don't even leave the first chapter of Genesis before 
the Trinity begins to be revealed. We don't even leave the first verse of Genesis before the Trinity begins to be revealed if we rightly understand it. In the beginning, God, our triune, eternal creator. Saints, God is the power. He is the force. He is the actor behind the evidence behind the phenomenon that we call creation, we call the, the cosmos, we call the stars, we call the galaxies, we call the solar system, we call the sun and the earth, we call life. God is the force, the power, the actor, as Isaac Newton, a creationist, the father of physics. Get that. Isaac Newton, no small name in true science, the father of physics, a creationist who believed the Bible. Isaac Newton's third law says for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. We see the reaction everywhere we look. The actor demanded for the reaction is only supplied by Genesis 1.1. There is no other logical or scientific explanation for the actor behind the reaction that we see everywhere. As Psalm 19 declares, the heavens declare the glory of God. We see the reaction. They declare the action and the actor, God, His glory manifest. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech. Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech or language where His, where His force, where His power, where His action is not heard. We see it everywhere we look. Genesis 1.1 is just the declaration of it. The folly of rejecting this truth, the truth of Genesis 1.1, the folly is addressed in Psalm 14.1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. God there is not name-calling. It's a moral indictment of intellectual folly. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. That is foolish. For everywhere you look, you see Newton's law played out before you that demands the actor of Genesis 1.1, Elohim, Yahweh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Consider with me Hebrews 1, 1-4 as we think about the force, the actor, the power Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, God. Hebrews 1, 1 opens up much like Genesis 1, 1 with God. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds. And so, Genesis 1, 1 Elohim, 
The Father and the Son are united, and we know also the Spirit united in this creative act. And here in Hebrews 1.1, it says that the Father made the worlds, made all the matter of the cosmos through the Son. Verse 3, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person and upholding all things by the word of His power. It is God the Son who created the worlds, who created space, time, and matter, who is the God of Genesis 1.1, who not only created but upholds, actively upholds His creation, upholding all things by the word of His Power, His Word created, His Word sustains. When He had by Himself purged our sins, He sat right, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. This is the opening or preamble of Hebrews 1. Turn to verse 10. Hebrews 1 verse 10 And here we see the everlasting God, the everlasting Creator will remain. The created cosmos is subject to the fall. The created cosmos is subject to the Creator's curse. The created cosmos is subject to the Creator's decree and plan. The created cosmos is subject to the second law of thermodynamics. It is winding down. It will be used up. It will be uncreated. Hebrews 1 verse 10, and you, Lord, now this is in context, the Father speaking of the Son, God the Father speaking of the Son, it's Elohim speaking of Elohim, Um, it is Yahweh speaking of Yahweh, and you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands, they will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. Eternal creator. Temporal cosmos. Those who believe in an eternal cosmos believe in temporal gods. Gods who will in time be set aside as cultures mature, as individuals within those cultures mature and set them aside. But the reality is, we have an eternal creator, and this temporal cosmos will be set aside when the creator's will is accomplished. And as we reflected upon in Sunday school, even as the Lord Jesus upon the cross said, it is finished declaring His redemption, His atonement, completed and accomplished at the end of the age, at the end of this era, at the end of the heavens and the earth, when the fullness of the Lord's plan has come to pass, when Christ's atonement has been fully applied to all those for whom He died, the Lord Jesus says again in Revelation, it is done. And then there's a new heavens and new earth. For the old are undone by the will and by the word of he who created it with a word and he who sustains it with a word, as Hebrews chapter 1 declares. 
And so we see our eternal Creator declaring the temporal nature of this cosmos. And we see the comparison between the temporal cosmos that He created perishing, growing old like a garment, like a cloak being folded up, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. This is Elohim, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is Yahweh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the God of Genesis 1, 1, everlasting to everlasting, dwelling in eternity and creating space, time, and matter, creating a temporal cosmos and putting His glory on display. Track with me through Scripture, if you would. You may not be able to turn to some of these, but I want you to behold the glory of your Creator again. I want you to see how Scripture just declares Him and declares Him and declares Him. And I want your conviction to increase, your confidence to increase, and your heart to be steeled against evolutionist, that's a faith-based system, ideas and theories. Not science, not facts. Ideas and theories. I want your heart to be strengthened by the revelation of your God. In 1 Chronicles 16, 26, it says, For all the gods of the people are idols. They're idols. They're little puny gods who craft and shape an eternal cosmos. They were created by men. And so in man's writings, these idols are not comparable. they they're not worthy of comparison to the God of Genesis 1.1 who created the cosmos and all that is in it. For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. That's the distinction. Nehemiah 9.6 You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heavens of heavens, with all their host and the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that's in them, and you preserve them all, the host of heaven worships you. Psalm 8, verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained. When you look upon creation, consider them in that light. They are the work of the fingers of God, the moon and the stars, which He has ordained, and their course, their orbits, which He has ordained. Psalm 33 Verse 6, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Psalm 33, verse 9, for he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Psalm 89, verse 11, the heavens are yours. The earth is also yours and the world in all its fullness. You have founded them. It's no wonder man rebels against the very first verse of the Bible because if Genesis 1, 1 is true, and it most certainly is. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then it means, it means it's His. It means He possesses it. As Psalm 89, 11 declares, the heavens are yours, the earth is also yours. The world in all its fullness, you have founded them. Unfortunately for Greta, the world and the cosmos do not belong to 12-year-olds or 14-year-olds or 16-year-olds who... Skip class on Friday. It doesn't belong to the evolutionists. It doesn't belong to the earth firsters. It belongs to God. 
and it will not be undone by poor stewards. Now, we should be good stewards. We should be wise stewards of God's creation out of love of God and love of neighbor. But we need not unduly fret. We are finding on the streets right now, just so you know, it's not just Greta on the TV. Greta is laughable. We laugh, right? The world's not laughing. They're applauding. And they're not just applauding. They are believing. They have complete faith in Greta's worldview. Greta is a product of a godless worldview, and they are all fearing and trembling the end of the world as we know it. They're not fearing God. They're fearing pollution. They're fearing climate change. They're fearing a great tidal wave. They're fearing the death of the polar bear, but not God. They have all sorts of anxieties. Therefore, they can justify skipping school on Friday and all sorts of other atrocities based upon the fact that, don't you know the world is ending? There have long been people who have suggested that it would be better that humanity be wiped out for the good of Life, in general, for the good of the ecosystems. But that number is increasing. And I expect eco-terrorism to increase because their, their faith is increasing. Their evolutionist faith. And it's leading them astray from soundness of mind. They're now full of all sorts of anxieties. They're going to need new psychologists for uh, evolution anxiety climate change anxiety. There'll be a special pill. You'll be certain of it. Psalm 89 verse 11, the heavens are yours. The earth is also yours. Saints, have confidence. It's God's. He's got it well in hand. It's His. The world in all its fullness, you have founded them. Psalm 96 verse 5, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. That's insulting. That's insulting. And it's meant to be They're just mere idols. But the Lord, Elohim, Yahweh, Jesus, He made the heavens and all that's in them. Do a compare and contrast. (laughs) They don't fare so well. Psalm 102, verse 25. Of old you have laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hand. Psalm 124.8 Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And Psalm 146.5-6 Happy, happy, get a hold of this. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help. Whose hope is in the Lord his God. Who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. Who keeps truth forever. Happy is he who is the God of Jacob, the God of Israel. Happy. Why? Because you have the God who created the heavens and the earth. You have the God that is actually a God. You have the God that exists. You have the God that didn't just create it, but sustains it and controls everything that happens within it. The only God, and certainly the only God worth worshiping, What's the alternative to this glorious, eternal Creator God? What's the alternative to this glorious, eternal, triune Creator God? What's the alternative to our glorious, eternal Creator, Jesus Christ? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. The only true alternative is absurdity. In place of absurdity, if you want to push absurdity off a step so you don't feel like a lunatic, 
you can plug in chance and time. But all that is is a delusion. That's just pushing absurdity and lunacy off one mere little step. It's smoke and mirrors. Pastor MacArthur, on chance, regarding chance, says this. Now for a few minutes... Let's get a little philosophical. I think you'll enjoy this. At the end of the evolutionist, the naturalist evolutionist says, and even the theistic evolutionist says, that things happen by chance. We get rid of the God of the Bible. We get rid of the God of Genesis. We get rid of the Creator, and then we've got chance. That's it. When you get rid of the God, when you get rid of Genesis 1-1, you're left with the God of chance. You're left with a tingle in your spine like Carl Sagan. You're left with the greatest of mysteries, the faint sensation of a distant memory of falling from a height. (laughs) That sounds like something Lucifer might remember. Oh, saints, let's focus in on our eternal Creator. And behold His glory through the Scriptures. In Genesis 21, 33, it says, Then Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there called on the name of the Lord, Elohim. He called on the name of Elohim, the everlasting God. That's our God. The everlasting God. The great I Am. The one who is dependent upon nothing. The one who does not need our bowl of fruit set before him that he might come take the essence of the fruit. The one who does not need us to feed him. He doesn't need anything at all. In Deuteronomy 33, 27, we see the eternal God. It says, the eternal God is your refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Saints, you are the people of the eternal God, and the eternal God is your refuge. The eternal God is transcendent and imminent. He is near. You can know Him. You can abide in Him. You can rest in Him. The eternal God is your refuge. What is a refuge? is that place where you flee from all threats. The eternal God is your refuge. Your greatest threat is your own sin. Second to that, the sins of others. But flee to your eternal God, your eternal refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. Everlasting arms. You may feel secure in the arms of your father or Your mother as a child, you may remember that as an adult. You may feel secure in the arms of your husband. But our eternal God has everlasting arms. I love when the Scriptures say His arm is not too short. It speaks of His mighty arm. It talks of us not trusting the horses and chariots, the armies of men, but in the mighty arm of God that will not be thwarted, will not be undone. This is our eternal God with everlasting arms. First 
Chronicles 16.36 says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. They, play, they praised the Lord for His eternal everlasting nature. They worshipped Him as the everlasting Elohim, distinct from the Elohims of men, the gods that man creates. In Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. This is the God that pre-existed matter, space, and time. All other gods are the idols of men, created in space, matter, and time by man's imagination. This God, the God of the Bible, is the God who was the God before the mountains were brought forth, before He had ever formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. That's our God and that's our declaration. That's our boast. This is the God that makes sense of the cosmos that we experience, the cosmos that we live in. This is the God that makes sense of all the laws of the universe, physical, moral, logical. They all go back to God. This is the God that makes sense of all information, all information leading to a mind, information theory. That's good science. No exceptions. Every time you see information, it leads to a mind. Just like the simplicity of a snowman, right? That's information. That's design. It's simple, mind you. Even a child could do it. Nevertheless, it reveals a mind. And no one would ever walk by and say, wow, look at that. That is something. It, the wind blew and the snow fell and, and the wind must have blown a, a limb off that tree on that side. It stuck in there like an arm and, and it blew off the, the other tree on that side and it stuck in like another arm. And, and then somehow, I mean, I don't know what wind picks up rocks or lumps of coal, but it made buttons up the center and, and eyes and, and somebody must have been eating a carrot for lunch and dropped it. And, and I don't know, maybe a deer picked it up and stuck it in there or something. But uh, it has to be by pure and utter chance, right? And, and uh, apparently, you know, some child left his his scarf and hat out, and that blew up in the wind as well. If anyone said such a thing, you'd say, um, that's nuts. That's absurd. What is wrong with you? Of course, some child made it, or some father and child, better yet, or some whole family, or group of kids made it. But no, it was not a, a bit of chance and wind and time under the cover of darkness during the night. Lunacy. So the Scriptures declare our eternal God who dwells in eternity, our everlasting God, as Psalm 90 verse 2 says, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Psalm 93 verse 2, your throne is established from old, you are everlasting. See, God's authority, God's rule, God's throne is set in the reality that He is the everlasting God. Therefore, He's the everlasting King. He's the everlasting ruler. He's the ruler that will not be avoided. There are many rulers that you could avoid. You could hide for a time, right? And maybe come out when their rule has passed. But you cannot avoid the rule 
and authority and being held accountable by the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Elohim of Genesis 1-1, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. His throne is forever because He is forever. You are from everlasting. Therefore, your throne is established from old. Psalm 102.24 says, I said, Oh my God, do not take me away in the midst of my days. Your years are throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them and they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Does that sound familiar? Hebrews 1, that's where that's from. The Father is quoting that in Hebrews 1 and applying it to the Son. Again, this is our eternal Creator versus a temporal cosmos. Man's gods, the idols that men create, have an eternal cosmos that their puny little gods just shape and craft, but don't create. The God is the creator of the entire cosmos, space, time, and matter, as declared in the very first verse. That's a bold declaration in a single sentence in the first verse of the Bible. Not a wee little God shaping and crafting stuff. Oh, isn't that nice? but the omnipotent God, the eternal God, who dwells in eternity and creates time in the beginning. God created the heavens, space, and the earth, matter. This is our God. Psalm 103, verse 17. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. See, Our everlasting God, our eternal God, has everlasting benefits, everlasting blessings for those that worship Him, for those that follow Him, for those that obey Him, for those that come to Him through His Son in repentance and faith. Because He is an everlasting God, there are everlasting benefits. Conversely, because He's an everlasting God, there is everlasting judgment and damnation. This is the God that must be dealt with. This is the God who will deal with you forever. Because He's the everlasting God, you will forever be a child of God or you will forever be an enemy of God. Under His authority, under His throne, forever. Thus sinful man wants no part of the everlasting God. Psalm 145 verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. He doesn't just have an everlasting throne. He has an everlasting kingdom in which that throne is set. And your dominion endures forever through all generations. Psalm 145 13. Saints, this should give you a confidence. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom because he's an everlasting God. Where do you want to dwell? In a kingdom that's passing away? I love America. I truly do. It's the finest nation on the planet, finest nation that's ever existed. It is. Where you are the freest to serve the one true God and to proclaim His name. But this kingdom will soon end. As much as I love it, I know it will soon end. And so I can't fret and worry, nor can I anchor my faith and my hope in this earthly kingdom. 
I want to be a good citizen. I want to vote biblically. I want to participate in the republic that God's providence has blessed us with. But my hope is in the kingdom to come and in the everlasting king who will reign reign on his everlasting throne in his everlasting kingdom forever and ever and ever, we being his everlasting subjects, glad subjects. Because this theocracy is ruled by an everlasting omnibenevolent king, omnibenevolent toward his children, all loving toward his children, all loving toward his subjects, all loving toward those whom he bought with his blood. Live toward that, that day, toward that life, toward that kingdom. Best life later. It's coming. It's coming. Is that not our prayer? Thy kingdom come. The everlasting kingdom, that's our prayer. It's coming because the everlasting king is coming because the everlasting creator created it all and he's going to uncreate it in a moment. The great fire, the elements will melt away. And there'll be a new heavens and new earth and the everlasting kingdom will come down. The everlasting king will dwell amongst his people forever and ever and ever. Proverbs 10, verse 25. Proverbs 10, verse 25. When the whirlwind passes by, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation with an everlasting Creator, an eternal creator, an everlasting king, an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting throne and dominion forever and ever and ever. The righteous has an everlasting foundation. You feel sometimes like your, your life is, you know, on sand. If you're not in Christ, it is. But if you're in Christ, saints, your life is on the rock. The everlasting creator, the everlasting king, the everlasting kingdom, with His everlasting throne, His everlasting dominion. You have an everlasting foundation. Are you tempted to worry when they show you the polar ice caps melting and the polar bears swimming incessantly? You ought not since there is record snowfall. But you ought not anyhow. For even if we did ruin a few ecosystems, even if we did ruin the climate and, and uh, things got bad for a season, oh, saints, there's an everlasting foundation beneath us. Not the mere matter we call earth, but Christ, the rock. We stand on Christ. Not simply earth. Christ. He is the rock we stand upon. He is eternal. Consider Isaiah. We'll spend a little time in Isaiah. Typically a Christmas verse. It was prayed today. It was sung today. It was read today. Because we're in the Christmas season. Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Mighty God, Elohim, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Because he's the everlasting creator, he's the everlasting God, with an everlasting kingdom, an everlasting throne, everlasting dominion, there will be no end to his government and, saints, and his peace. His peace. He's the prince of peace. He's the everlasting prince of peace. There'll be no end to his government and peace. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Isaiah 26 verse 4, trust in the Lord forever. Do you hear that? Trust in the Lord. What Lord? What Elohim? The Elohim. The eternal Elohim. The eternal creator Elohim. Trust in the Lord forever. For in Yah, the Lord is everlasting strength. Yah from Yahweh. Trust in the Lord forever. For in Yah, the Lord is everlasting strength. Because He's the everlasting God, our everlasting Creator, the everlasting King with an everlasting kingdom, with an everlasting throne, and everlasting dominion, He has everlasting strength. Trust Him. Trust Him with your eternal soul. Trust Him with your future. Trust Him with your present reality. Trust Him for the day. Trust Him for the hour. Because He has everlasting strength. Don't resist Him. Not in heart, mind, or deed. To distrust Him is to resist Him. Trust Him. Isaiah 26, 4. Trust in the Lord forever. In Yah, the Lord is everlasting strength. Isaiah 40, verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Isaiah 40, just so you know, it's in a, it's in a section of Isaiah where God is mocking the idols. He's just mocking the idols. He tells them to go out and cut down their tree and make their God and and then describes how they then light a little campfire with it and cook their food over it. And so half of it's campfire and half of it's God to be worshipped. It's mock-worthy and God mocks it. This is the section this is born out of. And he says, have you not known? Have you not heard? Wake up, people! Stop with your idols! Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God is compared to your idols. The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He's omniscient and he's omnipotent. Trust him. Cease with your idols. And saints, don't make an idol out of the true God. Don't say you believe in the God of the Bible, that you believe in God of Genesis 1.1, but distrust his omniscience and his omnipotence. Trust him. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Isaiah 45, 17. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. What quality of salvation do you want? I mean, you can go to the Mormon temple and they'll hook you up. You can get a salvation there. You can go to the Catholic church right now. If you hurry, you can take that bread, pop it in your mouth, 
toss back that cup, you'll have some salvation there. You can go up the street to the mosque and they'll get you some salvation through works, through attendance of prayers at the mosque. You get you some salvation. But what quality do you want? You want everlasting salvation from the everlasting God, from the everlasting Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we have from the one true God. Isaiah 51 verse 11, So the ransomed, purchased, so the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy. What kind of joy do you want, saints? You want the joy that our everlasting Creator God will give you. It is everlasting joy. Oh, we have a season of sorrow and a sad, sin-affected world, but there is an eternal season of joy coming with our eternal God who gives us everlasting salvation and everlasting joy. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Isaiah 51 verse <clears throat> 12, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of a man who will die and the son of man who will be made like grass and you forget the Lord your maker who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth? You have feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor when he is prepared to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor, the captive, Exile hastens that he may be loosed, that he should not die in the pit, and that his bread should not fail. But I am the Lord your God who divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. This is our God. Isaiah 54, verse 8, With a little wrath I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you. Everlasting joy, everlasting kindness, everlasting salvation under the everlasting rule, under the everlasting throne and the everlasting kingdom of the everlasting creator God. Elohim of Genesis 1.1. Isaiah 55 verse 3, Incline your ear and come to me here and your soul shall live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. The everlasting covenant of Christ's own precious blood. A covenant that will not be broken. A covenant that cannot be violated. A covenant that will not be undone. Our God will make an everlasting covenant with us in Christ Jesus through His blood. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. He who inhabits eternity revealed himself in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The eternal creator revealed himself and a temporal cosmos. In Isaiah 60, verse 19, it says, The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be to you an everlasting light. 
At the end of the Bible in Revelation, it's quite clear that Jesus Christ will be the light of heaven. He'll be the light of the new heavens and new earth. He who is the light of the world will light the world. Oh, saints. One final verse from Isaiah. Isaiah 61. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, at the outset of his ministry, the outset of the Lord Jesus' ministry, he went to the synagogue and he asked the Isaiah scroll. And they handed him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And he read Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. If you keep reading down to verse 7, it says, Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion Therefore, in their land, they shall possess double. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. Jesus declared that He was the fulfillment of this prophecy. He said, today the Scriptures are filled in your hearing. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, he said. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, everlasting Elohim. The Son incarnate, Elohim incarnate. The everlasting, eternal Son of God took upon himself the additional nature of mankind to come and suffer and die for sinners to establish the everlasting covenant of his blood in order that John 3.16 would be our reality. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall have everlasting life, dear saints, from the everlasting God of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And all of God's saints said, Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you.